You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Good to be back with you. Um, I'm going to be crossing the Atlantic for a few days, so I'm looking forward to getting this podcast uh, out there for our uh, listeners and subscribers. Um, To uh, lay out what we'll be talking about on this episode, uh, we're once again going to be doing a two-topic podcast. We've been doing a lot of those recently, and uh, I think um, I've seen a few reviews saying that people do like that. So if you uh, like that format, just uh, shoot me a note letting us know uh, how you feel about that versus the broader discussion about a single topic. But we have a lot on the podcast agenda today. Uh, Some of this will be included in my newsletter, which is about to go out today. We're recording this on Tuesday, September 17th. Uh, So the first thing we'll talk about, um, which is kind of the big focus of the podcast, is Taiwan's continued loss of its uh, so-called diplomatic allies. The phrase diplomatic allies is a little bit misleading, but basically countries that recognize Taiwan as a nation state and and maintain uh, normal diplomatic ties. Uh, The Solomon Islands, the uh, Pacific Island state, decided to break ties with Taiwan after... uh, after more than three decades of normal uh, diplomatic relations between the two sides, uh, Solomon Islands becomes the sixth country to break ties with Taiwan since um, President Tsai Ing-wen was elected uh, in early 2016. So we'll talk a bit about the implications of, of that uh, decision uh, geopolitically in the South Pacific, but also for Taiwan's international isolation more broadly and uh, why China is continuing to pluck away Taiwanese diplomatic allies. And then the second thing I want to talk about And this is a bit more acute, but there's a lot of um, unanswered questions and uncertainties. uh, So this this part of the conversation will be a little bit more speculative is the implications of the weekend's um, attacks on Saudi oil refineries and oil processing facilities um, on Asian oil importers. Uh, This is a pretty significant issue. The attack remains somewhat fuzzy. The U.S. appears to be attributing it to actors on Iranian soil. Um, but uh, at market open on Monday, uh, Brent crude prices shot up to $71 a barrel. Uh, that was the largest single day movement in the price of crude oil since the U.S. invasion of um, or the U.S. attack of Iraq in the first Gulf War. So quite significant geopolitically. Uh, many Asian countries are sensitive to oil prices uh, for fiscal reasons. There's talk of um, countries releasing oil reserves. We'll talk a little bit about what all of that might mean, too. But Prashant, um, I wanted to sort of you know begin by asking you about this um, Solomon Islands decision for for Taiwan. So right now, Taiwan just has 16 countries left uh, that continue to maintain normal diplomatic relations. That includes the Vatican, and of course, we've heard some you know lingering rumors there about the Vatican potentially um, revising its approach to China more broadly. But um, how do you how do you think we should think about uh, this latest decision by the Solomon Islands? Uh, many of uh, Taipei's partners do do continue to be in the Pacific Islands region. Uh, how do you how do you make sense of this? Yeah, I think I think two key points that I'd make there. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is you know it's not a surprise. So we've seen this. Uh, you know, China and Taiwan engaged in this sort of checkbook diplomacy battle um, since Tsai Ing-wen took office, and you know this is just the kind of latest casualty from from the Taiwanese side. Um, with six countries to do so, so far. I think the bigger question for Taiwan, though, is, I mean, how does it manage this environment where the number of diplomatic allies, or so-called diplomatic allies it has, um, is reduced and Taiwan and China is, uh, you know, remaining adamant on strangling Taiwan's international space. And, you know, Taiwan has a number of options. It can, you know, 
build its relationships with other countries, including economies and democracies, not necessarily formal allies. And it can also build up its defense capabilities and its own ability to defend itself, defend itself. But as a much smaller country, there are limited options that Taiwan has, not unlike other smaller countries um, in the in the Indo-Pacific region. So it does kind of display, you know, the limited options that small countries have. The other issue, of course, as, as we'll kind of talk about is, you know, Taiwan is nearing an election itself in the next few months. And so this idea of how Taiwan should manage this kind of international environment and regional environment that's challenging for it. You know, we're about to see uh, a, a domestic uh, battle in Taiwan about how, you know, Taiwan can manage that space and different candidates have have different views. And so as with other countries in the Indo-Pacific, that's going to be interesting to see um, as well. You also noted the fact that, you know, this is the, you know, we're talking about the South Pacific. And I think within this notion of the Indo-Pacific concept that we've addressed um, during this podcast, you know, extensively, it, it really is interesting, right? So, you know, five of Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies are in the South Pacific. And so this really is a region of intense U.S.-China competition, but also competition among other actors, and in this case, China and Taiwan. Right, right. I mean... You know, I think I think it's worth um, talking a little bit more about the Solomon Islands uh, specifically. So, uh, you know, they they set up a task force to review their diplomatic relationship with Taipei uh, versus Beijing. Um, so, why is China, you know, undertaking this campaign? It's primarily to chip away at broadly Taiwan's legitimacy on the international stage. But as you said, with the election coming up, uh, the idea is to demonstrate to the Taiwanese public that, you know, Tsai Ing-wen's stewardship of Taiwan and Taiwan's economy isn't in Taiwan's national interest, right? I think that's the idea that China is trying to convey by plucking away these allies, hopefully with the interest of influencing the elections and privileging a candidate like uh, Han Ko Yu, who is very pro-Beijing and you know, uh, people are looking to him to potentially be the spoiler uh, in the January elections. If he wins, uh, that will be welcomed by Beijing. Uh, the Democratic Progressive Party uh, since 2016 um, has really not, you know, complied with Beijing's uh, interests, so to speak. I mean, uh, China reacted quite negatively to Tsai's inaugural address back in 2016, seeing her as effectively repudiating the so-called 1992 consensus, uh, which the DPP doesn't really see as a legitimate source for um, the cross-strait understanding anymore. But I mean, you know, these diplomatic um, allies that Taiwan does have, I mean, they do serve as a a sort of de jure reminder of Taiwanese sovereignty on the international stage. Uh, so Taiwan has all of the trappings of a normal country, with the exception of its unique status diplomatically, because Taiwan and China each stick to the one China principle, where either of them will maintain diplomatic relations with any given country, given that the the country doesn't have diplomatic ties with the other. So, I mean, in the United States, you know, you've seen... Um, People on the Hill, uh, senators, congressmen, criticize uh, the Solomon Islands and other countries for breaking diplomatic ties with Taiwan. But of course, that's what the United States did in 1979, right, to normalize ties with um, with China. And of course, there's no debate in the United States about reversing that. Of course, the U.S. does have the Taiwan Relations Act, which maintains a very uh, robust relationship with Taipei. Um, so it is it is a problem for Taiwan. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think Tsai Ing-wen has actually been thinking rather creatively about ways to sustain Taiwan's economic competitiveness um, and uh, demonstrate that, you know, Taiwan doesn't necessarily need to allow itself to be coerced economically um, and diplomatically by Beijing. Uh, you know, um, maybe you can talk a bit about uh, Taiwan's broader outreach to Southeast Asia, Prashant. I mean, that's been a a, a major part of, of size uh, sort of uh, foreign economic policy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is part of the, the struggle that Taiwan faces. I mean, I think the, the idea has been, you know, if it's sort of diplomatic allies formally are, are being narrowed, you know, what role can Taiwan play on the international stage in terms of pulling in more countries and building out relations? And I think Southeast Asia is, is, is a case in point um, where Taiwan has seen inroads in, you know, in areas such as you know, economic cooperation, health cooperation, Obviously, there are still a lot of challenges in the way that these countries manage uh, their relations between China and Taiwan. And so Taiwan has to you know, sometimes fly under the radar a little bit. And some of the elements of security cooperation are a little bit more difficult uh, to advance. But definitely, that definitely has been uh, part of a concerted effort under the Tsai administration. I think the, the, the issue is really going to be, as you pointed out at the outset, you know, you know, people can do math, right? So if 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 there are you know this many diplomatic allies that are you know severing their ties with Taiwan, and the outreach internationally is not producing uh, the relevant dividends, you know, then what does that say about uh, the value of of the strategy in a in a domestic context with with an election? I also think, I mean, the point that you 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 emphasize is really important, which is. You know, we talk about these countries like the Solomon Islands in relation to China and, and Taiwan and other countries, but it really is important to pay attention to these countries for their own sake, right? And, you know, Solomon Islands is a perfect example. You mentioned the task force that they set up. You know, the, the government's been really, um, you know, careful and calibrated in how it's trying to manage this relationship because, you know, you have an administration in the United States which has said, um, you know, that with respect to countries that are severing relations with Taiwan, there have been discussions about, you know, what the United States should do in response. Should it take any kind of, you know, not necessarily coercive action, but, you know, responses to these countries and, you know, make it make it clear that Taiwan is a friend of the United States. And if you change your diplomatic recognition, the United States may have to reconsider elements of its assistance, too. And that obviously would be to the detriment of these countries. So, um it's a really careful balance for them to walk to, particularly since they're very small countries in this big international context, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there is a precedent for countries switching back. I mean, granted, in a very different time for cross-strait ties and certainly during a very different era of uh, Chinese power. But, you know, Nauru in 2002 broke off its mm -hmm. diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And then three years later, it came back because uh, it said that the economic benefits of diplomatic ties with China just didn't actually come together. Um, of course, uh, you know, now I think with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, things are rather different. Uh, in fact, uh, in the in the Financial Times reporting, actually, I, I saw an interesting detail that I didn't see too in, uh, in too many other places about the Solomon Islands decision making on this front, uh, which was that the island's uh, central bank, um, which uh, issued sort of, you know, its kind of advisory notice mm -hmm. on this decision, um, actually gave a warning that uh, switching diplomatic ties to China uh, might not be economically advantageous and could lead to the Solomon Islands falling into the so-called uh, debt trap. So it's interesting mm -hmm. to see how... Um, perceptions about how China is using overseas investment and the Belt and Road Initiative are now sort of factoring into the internal debates among some of Taipei's diplomatic allies as they weigh their decisions to switch. Um, of course, I don't know if it's uh, you know likely at this point that the Solomon Islands will actually think about reversing back to Taiwan in the future. Uh, but I think, you know, that's something uh, worth uh, underscoring here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so I guess we should move forward with the second development that you discussed at the outset, which is, you know, and the details are still a little bit unclear, but what we know so far on the morning of September 14th, we had 
um, a series of drones and and we don't know what else at, the, at this stage perhaps you know missiles and the like striking and aramco oil processing uh, facilities in eastern saudi arabia and you know the reason why we're we're sort of talking about this on the asia geopolitics podcast is not only did the attack sort of disrupt Saudi Arabia's oil output and had ripple effects on on the markets economically and oil supplies, but there are a number of key Asian importers that rely on Middle Eastern sources for their energy needs, um, including key allies um, of the United States, such as Japan and South Korea, but also China and a number of other um, key Asian countries as well. And as you noted, I mean, this is kind of a big spike and a shock to oil prices uh, since the first Gulf War, and that's you know sort of 30 years ago. And so for an Asia Geopolitics podcast, uh, it seems to be a very important development for us to talk about. So Ankit, how would you sort of frame the significance of what we've seen so far? Obviously, details still a little bit unclear, but this is happening in a context of which you, it's not just an economic issue, right? You're seeing the United States engage in tensions with Iran, and there's issues with respect to that. And we have a broader strategic and security environment where the Trump administration is heading into elections next year and is debating on various issues, not just Iran, but also Afghanistan, China policy, U.S.-China trade war, lots to discuss in that regard. You know, how would you frame the significance of this development in that broader geopolitical context? Yeah, so I think, I think you know, the significance has both been overstated and understated. I know that's kind of a meaningless thing to say, but you know, that's kind of the way it strikes me. I mean, um, at least over the weekend when this happened, um, I think, I think there was, uh, you know, quite a bit of panic, uh, given the, given the rise in uh, crude oil futures, uh, you know, what does this mean for the oil reserves, uh, in these countries? Um, as of now though, two days later, um, you know, Brent crude prices have come down a little, uh, they reached 71 during intraday, intraday trading on Monday. Uh, closed at 67 on Monday, and now on Tuesday, they're down to 65 and may continue to decrease. The Saudis are releasing some sort of reassuring statement saying that they'll be able to um, raise their production rather quickly. Uh, they've also apparently given um, Japan and South Korean uh, refiners assurances that the um, delivery schedules for crude won't change uh, through September and October. So that's a pretty decent runway for, um, you know, assuring these countries that they won't have to dip into reserves or anything like that. Um, I will say, though, I mean, you know, geopolitically, this is uh, rather clearly a consequence of the Trump administration sort of leaving the joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran. Right. I, I do think it's quite likely at this point that these attacks were conducted by Iran, um, obviously. So, you know, Iran is the culprit here, but um, the uh, the broader kind of context is, I think, worth noting, right? So for a country like China, for instance, which uh, after the JCPOA was sort of reducing its reliance on Saudi imports of oil um, and increasingly importing from Iran, of course, uh, after the U.S. reimposed sanctions, China had to go back to uh, greater reliance on Saudi Arabia again. And now this turns into a much larger shock. Um, and, you know, similar story for India as well. Uh, for India in particular, I think, you know, this is going to be a rather unwelcome development. Uh, one of the sort of external factors that really benefited the economic performance of the Modi government's first term from 2014 to 2019 was the low price of oil globally. Um, and now, of course, India is facing a, a broader set of economic headwinds internally. So the last thing the Indian government really needs to contend with right now is a more scarce uh, oil environment where prices are higher. Uh, so that won't be welcome as well. And, you know, finally, I guess, uh, Prashant, I mean, the 
the, the thing that you know I've been thinking a lot about with um, not not just this attack, but broadly speaking, the rise in tensions in the Gulf this summer. Uh, what with the attack on the uh, Japanese-owned tankers uh, in the Persian Gulf earlier, uh, the drone shootdown, and you know this sort of will they, won't they discussion about the U.S. and Iran potentially heading into a conflict is you know we talk about U.S. strategy towards Asia and the national defense strategy, which underscores great power competition and sort of winding down commitments in the Middle East. It all sounds rather familiar to what the Obama administration was trying to do with the rebalance, right? And extricate the United States from these crises in the Middle East that continue to uh, crop up. And of course, access to oil, um, you know, isn't isn't uh, today where it was uh, during the first term of the Obama administration, right? The U.S. is now a larger producer of oil than Saudi Arabia is. There is a greater degree of um, self-sufficiency in the United States. But of course, for allies and partners uh, in Asia, maintaining access to the Middle East and maintaining sort of freedom of navigation in the Persian Gulf does continue to be a, a rather um, important cause for concern. So I think, you know, the U.S., I mean, even even if it might want to leave the Middle East and sort of begin devoting its attentions elsewhere, um, finds itself unable to. And I think in the Trump administration's case, it's really partly of its own doing. No, absolutely. I think I think the two past two administrations in the United States are, you know, characteristic of the notion that, you know, whether you try to disengage from the Middle East or you try to revisit your approaches, uh, the Middle East isn't isn't going away. Uh, anytime soon in terms of its strategic importance. And I think this is something we're going to continue to see. It's also something which, you know, the the UN General Assembly just kicked off uh, there, there in New York this week. Um, we're seeing a bunch of meetings. So we're already seeing some, you know, uh, these meetings are good, give us a good sense for how geopolitics is being managed, whether it's, you know, what the Iranians are putting out, uh, what the United States is putting out and and other countries. So it really would be interesting to to sort of see once this week uh, plays out, um, you know, what is the sort of international pulse um, on these issues? Because, uh, you know, that really is, I think, where, where we're at right now, where there's, you know, broader concerns about, um, you know, global economic headwinds, uh, you know, tensions in the Middle East, uh, U.S. elections and uncertainty about the United States role. So a lot of things hanging in the balance here. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, like I suggested that things might get better from here, that uh, markets mm-hmm. do appear to be calming down. But it's also very possible that uh, we could actually see a spiraling out. The Saudis are inviting uh, U.N. arms inspectors to investigate the sources of the attack. Uh, attribution does remain unclear. The Saudis are sort of strangely holding out on actually openly attributing mm-hmm. this to the Iranians, you know, despite the uh, sort of, you know, three plus years now of open uh, geopolitical um, acrimony and contest between the two of them. Um, so it is it is possible that, you know, the Saudis do choose to escalate in some way. And this does end up, you know, spiraling out of control. I do think that the Saudis don't have the incentives to do that. Um, there are a lot of sort of domestic reasons, including the um, IPO for Saudi Aramco, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be the great, you know, largest IPO ever. Uh, that's now going to be delayed. So this does end up having a cost for the Saudi um, for the Saudis. And. You know, broadly speaking, um, for all of these other countries we just discussed in Asia, I mean, the last thing any of them want, including China, is a Middle Eastern conflict um, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, The Iranians are sort of escalating their own pressure campaign in an attempt to build leverage, in my view, uh, for a more favorable negotiation with the United States if and when uh, the JCPOA or its successor agreement are to be negotiated. Trump still hasn't ruled out a personal meeting with Rouhani and, of course, with the departure of 
National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, that might be something that happens as, as soon as this month. Uh, the Iranians have pushed back. I think the Supreme Leader uh, Khamenei said that that would not be possible ever in, you know, for uh, all eternity. But, um, you know, you never you never really know. And uh, never is a very long time. And I think the Iranians would be willing to uh, de-escalate this at this point. So again, I mean, we'll have to see. It's, it's really too early to say, but I think, you know, this is a, a good reminder that uh, you can't really talk about uh, Asian geopolitics without still um, incorporating the Middle East sort of important role in um, energy exports. And I think, uh, you know, the world isn't isn't quite as um, as free of these concerns that arise from the Middle East as it might like to think it is. Absolutely. Great. Uh, so I think we'll uh, close it up there for today. Um, Prashant, mm-hmm. uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Sounds good. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, Before we close, just a quick note from our sponsor. So this episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, please do so. We really appreciate that. Gets the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.